Good morning. Let us start with prayer. Father, we come again before your throne, Lord, and we just are in awe of the greatness of your power and your glory. And yet, Lord, you do come to us in a soft and tender way, seeking us to come to you, Lord. You want to draw our hearts to you. You want to draw us close to you. You want us to see you, Lord, and to acknowledge that you are our king. And Father, you want us to trust you and to obey you and follow you every day of our lives, Lord. And Father, as we move forward with the service, we just ask, Lord, that you continue to teach us, that your spirit be on us, Lord, and, and that we learn today the things that you would want us to learn. And, and Father, that we would not just make it head knowledge for ourselves, but that we would take the knowledge, Lord, and apply it and use it in the way that you intend. And Father, again, we just thank you for your love and we thank you for the peace and joy that you give us. And Lord, we thank you for all the healing that you have uh, done in all of our lives, Lord, because at one time or another, each one of us have been suffering and it's been your healing hand that has removed that suffering. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. It's interesting how the refrain of this uh, service has gone so far that God wants us to see him and he wants us to acknowledge him. He's reaching out to us even in song today. He's reaching out to us. He wants us to know that he loves us with an everlasting love. And from the very beginning, he has just wanted us to know that and he consistently has revealed himself and his nature throughout the scriptures in word and in deed, we see what he accomplishes. Every day in our own lives, we see what God accomplishes because we eat every day, we drink every day, we take breath every day, we enjoy the beauty around us that he has given us every single day. He's revealing himself to us every single day. And he wants us to see him and he wants us to find him. But at the same time, he wants us to know really who he is and the power behind his name and the authority that he has. I was struck at about 20 years old, maybe 21, the first time that I'm about to, what I've, I've learned about what I'm about to share with you now uh, of the awe behind it and the power and uh, and it really takes time to really pause and to consider it. And I guess the easiest way without you knowing what I'm talking about right now is to ask everybody, let's go to Exodus chapter three. Because during this time period, the Israelites were slaves in a land of Egypt and were being greatly distressed because of the severe and harsh conditions of their slavery. <clears throat> we remember the story of Joseph where Joseph went into the land of Egypt and God really uh, provided through Joseph in the land when there was great famine. And uh, you remember Joseph ended up ultimately bringing his, entirely, his entire family to Egypt and they were treated very well and uh, were taken care of. But over time, the leaders of Egypt began to distrust and, uh, and worry that the Israelites were going to take over their nation. 
And so they started to treat them very harshly and command uh, great things from them and expect them to work very hard and, and diligently and they were basically slaves is what it boils down to. And they were crying out to God this whole time for his help and his mercy. And God heard their cry and was about to send Moses to them. And you remember Moses when he was born that um, it was a uh, an Egyptian woman who uh, brought him into their home and raised him. And he was in a prominent position, really, as he was growing up. And then he saw one of the, his people being harshly treated. And if you remember, he killed a man. And so Moses got scared, and he went into the wilderness. And, uh, but God called Mo, uh, out to Moses from a burning bush. And I'm really really condensing the story, but he cried out to Moses in a burning bush. And uh, Moses was like really surprised to hear a voice coming from a bush and a bush that's burning, but yet not being consumed. And the word of God is speaking to him. And he, and he even says to Moses that you need to take off your shoes because the ground that you're walking on is holy ground. And he instructed Moses to go to the people of Israel to go and to help them and to, so they can be freed. God was going to free them from the land of Egypt through Moses, through the work that he was going to do through Moses. And, and let us take a moment and go to verse 13. And Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, God of your, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Abraham, uh, Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. This name, I am, has great significance to Israel in Jesus' day. Any mention of that name would certainly rise the eyebrows of any Jewish leader. Let us take a moment now and go to John chapter 8. And we know that the Pharisees, they refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus came onto the scene and he proclaimed that he was who he is, that he's the Messiah. And they refused to see it. And anytime they spoke to him, they were either trying to trap him or they were being indignant towards him. And we see an example of the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus in his words when they brought a woman that they caught in the very act of adultery early in chapter 8. They brought her to Jesus and said to, them, and said to Jesus, and what would you do with this woman? What do you want to do with this woman? What do you suggest we do? And I'm, again, paraphrasing. And uh, Jesus said, well, as he's writing on the ground, Whatever one of you 
is without sin, you cast the first stone. And what happened? One by one, starting with the oldest to the youngest, they walked away. And Jesus looked to the woman and he said, Woman, where are your accusers? And obviously there were none. And Jesus told her, I also do not accuse you. Go and sin no more. Who is this man? Who is this man we call Jesus that he forgives sin? He claims to be the Messiah. The leaders of Israel refuse to acknowledge him. But as we go into John 8 and move to verse 48, we get a picture of really who Jesus is here. And when Jesus talking to the Pharisees, we also know prior to verse 48, that is, he's talking to the Pharisees, that Jesus pointed out what the true nature of the Pharisees were. That their true nature really is that they are children of the devil. And when they heard this, they replied to him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you say, Whoever keeps my word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets also died. Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. He of whom you say, He is our God, though you do not know Him, but I know Him. If I would say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His words. Your ancestors Abraham rejoiced that, that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Very truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Immediately the Pharisees were indignant and began to pick up stones to stone Jesus. And when I was telling you earlier, when I was 20 years old, 21 years old, and I read this for the first time, and I saw this, I was amazed. I was taken back. And my mind was overwhelmed. My soul was full of joy. I'm like, is this what I'm seeing? Because I really didn't know the Bible. I really didn't know the scriptures very well. And I was learning. I was a very new Christian. And I saw this and I was in awe. Jesus is claiming to be the one and only true God, the God of Israel. This has serious implications, doesn't it? And the implication was clear and there was no doubt that Jesus claimed to be that one and only God, the God of Israel the God who freed the Israelites from Egypt. Jesus said, I am. He is the King of Kings and He is the Lord of Lords. 
I don't know if you could take that in. I am. He's claiming to be Almighty God. I would like to highlight seven of the Jesus' proclamations of his deity. (laughs) And we're going to start in John chapter 6 and verse 35. And these are the seven statements we know that Jesus, where he uh, claimed to be I am. And he started out with saying that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. The giver of bread himself, Jesus Christ, he sustains us every day on a, physically, does he not? He takes care of each one of us. And I know a lot of people who think, well, I'm the one who feeds myself. I take care of myself. I go to the store every week. I go to the the grocery line, take my cart, and I'm pushing my cart all up and down the aisles, and I'm filling my buggy up with food, and I walk up to the register, and I pay the cashier for that. I take it out, put it in my car. I go home, and then I get it in the refrigerator, and I put it in the freezer, and then I got my food for the week. I'm the one who's taking care of me. Who provided the food? Who provided the food? All the food that every person in this world eats, where does it come from? Every ounce of drink that every person in this room and everybody in the world drinks, where does it come from? It comes from God. He sustains us and He takes care of us every single day. And just since we got here this morning and woke up this morning and got here, He has sustained us. He has fed us. He has clothed us. He has provided us shelter. And He has also given us every single breath we've taken since the moment we woke up this morning. And that is amazing to me to know that God loves us so much, even in our iniquity, that He continues on a daily basis to sustain us and to take care of us. We also know that during Jesus' day that Jesus provided the miracle of feeding the thousands, didn't we? And then on more than one occasion, he took a few loaves of bread and a couple fish, and he fed thousands. One time it was 5,000, another time it was 4,000. 9,000 people fed with a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. He multiplied that in a way that we cannot understand or comprehend. And I wondered if we were there that day, if we would have really comprehended just that bread being broken, passed on to the next person, and being broke again, passed on to the next person, being broke again. I don't know about you, but every time I've ever broke a piece of bread in half and passed it on to somebody else, all that's left is half. But Jesus multiplied that. I think that certainly demonstrates the power of his deity and the power of who he is. What an amazing day that would have been to see that. And there were many of those days like that with Jesus, the giver of life and the giver of our bread, isn't it? But he doesn't just stop by feeding us physically, does he? He feeds each one of us spiritually. We have direct access to him in prayer every single day. 
How many of us have a direct line to the President of the United States? And he's far less powerful than Jesus Christ. And we have a direct line to him. We have a personal relationship with him. He wants us to communicate with him. He wants that relationship. He's also given us the scriptures, hasn't he? So we can learn about his nature. So we can learn about who he is. So we can really grasp the God that we serve. So we can be fed spiritually every day because just as we need bread and water every day to sustain us physically, if we want to be sustained spiritually, we have to be in the Word of God. We have to be filling ourselves with His Word so He can sustain us spiritually. And I don't know about you, but the more I grow and the more I learn about God and the closer I grow to Him, the more ugly I feel to myself, the more I see the ugliness of my sin. And it's so wonderful that we do not have to bear that shame. It's wonderful to know that God doesn't want us to run away from Him because we have sinned. In fact, when we sin, if we're running away, we're doing the very opposite God wants us to do. Because when we run away from him, we have a tendency to do what? But more sin. What he wants us to do is run to him in repentance. And he's ready to forgive us at the drop of a hat. He wants us to know who he is. He wants that intimate relationship with us. How many of us in this room have made our wives or our husbands totally irritated? To where they wouldn't speak to you at all. And they were angry. I almost did that this morning. But does that relationship ever get resolution if you stay away? When does resolution happen? Is it when you come back to your spouse and say, you know what, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Those are tender moments in our personal relationships, aren't they? Those are hard moments in our personal relationships with each other, too. I don't know about you, but there's something about pride inside of me that I'm like, sometimes I hold on. I'm, nope, I am not saying I'm sorry. I'm not wrong. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not doing it. No, no. I can't see it. And then something inside of me is saying, David, you got to go do what you got to do. Like, but I don't want to. But you know what? The freedom and the peace that immediately follows that is amazing. The peace that follows that. Follow me for a second here because I'm talking about a personal, physical relationship with our spouse. We're not talking about a relationship with God. If we find that peace coming to our spouse when we need forgiveness and we ask for forgiveness, how much more are we going to feel peace when we come to God and ask Him to forgive us? But you know, we don't have to do this alone, do we? We have the Spirit of God within us 
to guide us every step of the way. Not only when we're about to do wrong and he's whispering in our ear, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't say what you're about to say. You shouldn't do what you're about to do. Not only in those times, but even after we make the decision to sin. He's coming to us and saying, you know what? Come back to the Father. Come back to the Father. Repent of your sin. That guilt that you feel, or the anxiety that you feel inside of you when you do wrong, and if you have a voice sitting there telling you and drawing you to come to God, the guilt's not from God. But that soft voice saying, come back to me, is from God. And when you say, okay, Lord, I'm coming to you, please accept my forgiveness, my, 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 uh, me for who I am and I, and I have committed to sin and I am so sorry. The peace that just comes and overflows you is amazing. And any of us who have gone to God and asked Him to forgive us understand that. Just as we understand when we go to our spouse. God isn't going to tell us to get away. Our spouse might tell us, I'm not done being mad yet. You get away from me. They may not be ready to forgive you. But I tell you, God is always ready to forgive us. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son takes the, the wealth that his father gives him and he goes, squanders it. And the prodigal son is out in the pits and he is eating the leftovers from the animals that's being fed, that he's feeding. And he goes crawling back to his father. But when he goes crawling back to his father, his father isn't indignant towards him. His father is looking out for him. His father is seeking for him to come back. And he is glad and has great joy when his son returns and is repentant. That's our Father. That's our God. That's the one that we remain fully dependent on all the time. Because without Him, we have no hope. See, we have the Spirit of God working in each one of us. And that's a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in you when He's calling you back to the Father even though right now you don't feel worthy and you're kind of wanting to withdraw and you're wanting to pull away. He's trying to pull you back in towards Him because He doesn't want us to be far from Him. So He is the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. And then in John chapter 8 and verse 12, He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And all of us have read enough about Scripture and heard enough preaching to understand that when we're hearing the word light, it's talking about God and His goodness and His love and His overwhelming glory and His power. And when we hear of darkness, we're thinking of evil and sin. Right? And many of the scriptures verses establish the light that, that the light signifies the revelation of God, his righteousness and goodness. And it also establishes that darkness signifies sin, evil, and wrongdoing. Those who follow the light of Jesus will never walk in darkness. Exposure to the light reveals sin. Darkness cannot 
enter the light. I remember one time I was in a cavern. It was called Loray Caverns, I believe. They took us into the depths of the earth. And it was amazing the life that you've seen down there. And they had these lights on. They had fish down there with no eyeballs. It was fascinating. I was like, wow. But, and I was like, well, why, why don't they have light, eyeballs? And then they turned out the lights. I was like, well, I guess if I live down here, I really don't need eyeballs. Lights on, please. <laughs> I don't like this, but you could not see your hand in front of your face this close. You could not see. It was total darkness. And the man lit a little match and lit that room up like you wouldn't believe. You could see everybody there. One match. Darkness cannot survive in the light. And if we remain in the light, sin cannot remain in us. See, that picture, that physical picture of light and dark is a perfect representation of what God wants us to understand about when we remain in Him, darkness can't remain in us. It's impossible for darkness to remain in a soul who is remaining in the light of God. And He's calling each one of us to the light. Every one of us are called to the light of God. He wants us to know that we can depend on Him. And that's all He really wants from all of us, is our dependence on Him and our trusting in Him and Him alone. How many times have each one of us taken a road and said, I'm going to go down this road, and I'm talking about a metaphorical road of doing something that you really want to do, but in your heart you got the Spirit of God nudging you and saying, you know what, that's not the right thing to do. And you end up doing it anyhow, and you start heading down that road, and, and then you start to see the consequence of it, and you start dealing with the consequence of it, and you have to face it. Though God does not take away the consequence, and we have had those warning signs leading all the way up to that, what happens is you go further and further into the darkness. It's easier and easier to keep going into that darkness, isn't it? But when we stay close to Him, when we do start to stray off into the darkness, we hear God so much quicker than when we spent so much time living the way we want to live instead of the way of living the way God wants us to live. He is that light that keeps each one of us strong. He is that light that sustains every one of us. Let us take a moment and go to John chapter 10 and verse 7. 7 and 9 both tell us that Jesus, said, when he says, I am the gate for the sheep, I am the gate. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. And the gate we see in this verse is synonymous is not synonymous, I'm sorry, is not synonymous with a guarded gate or entryway. 
That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about a guarded gate that no one can enter. Rather, it is limited. It's a unique entryway. There is only one way. And there is no other gate. Who is the gate? Jesus. I am the gate. John 3.16 teaches us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you want everlasting life, you go to the gate. There's no other gate to everlasting life. We're not going to find everlasting life in any other religion, in any other belief system, at all. There is no other way to the kingdom of God except through Jesus Christ. Through the blood of the Lamb of God. He is the provider for us, not just for what we eat and drink, not only for our spiritual well-being and taking care of us every day physically and spiritually and feeding us that spiritual food, but He also is the one who provides us the way to heaven, the way to the gate, the way to the kingdom of God. There is no other way to the kingdom of God except by Jesus Christ. He is above all kings. He is above all lords. He is the head. There's a reason that He's the head. He is supreme above all. Above all, He is supreme. Each of these I am statements are like a miniature gospel, if you look at it. The gospel of God is spoken through each one of these I am statements. They are metaphorical descriptions of Jesus. Each of them are an insight into his mission as the one who comes to give life eternally to all of those who choose to believe. It's available to everyone, but the only ones who receive it are those who choose to believe. And I've said this before, belief is not just something you think. It's not just what you think. The demons believe that Jesus is God and they tremble. When you read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes, stop and look at that word believe. It is an action word. It's not something that you just think or a, a, a way of thinking. It's not just that. That belief means trust, depend on, lean on. So whoever trusts, whoever leans on, whoever depends on God will have everlasting life. That's what he's teaching us in John 3.16. There are a lot of people in America who believe that Jesus is God, but they're not Christian. They do not know the one true God. It's a head knowledge. It's not a heart knowledge. And it's only when it becomes a heart knowledge and you trust in Him and you depend on Him and you follow Him that you're going to have this life that He has to offer you. That's when you'll realize that He is the only gate. He is the gateway to heaven, to the kingdom of God. Let us take a moment now and go to John chapter 10 and verse 11, where we learn in 11 and 14 that he is the good shepherd. The word uh, good 
when you translate it, is kalos. To be good in this sense is more than being the opposite of bad. The Greek word kalos, which means good, has the connotation of beauty or lovely, beautiful or lovely. In what sense, though, is Jesus being the beautiful shepherd? Well, a man by the name of Raymond Brown put it this way. He pointed out that for the Greek speakers, kalos referred to an ideal, perfect beauty. Thus, Brown's translation is, I am the model shepherd. Jesus is describing himself as the ideal model shepherd to whom other human shepherds should be compared. This text then certainly speaks to those called to shepherd the flock today. Verse 14, the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. God, uh, I, Jesus said, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Those who are true Christians know Jesus. They are his family and he is theirs. Just as we know our parents and children, we know him, Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as he knows the Father, he knows the church. In John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And we know that sheep go astray, don't we? And we also know that sheep know the voice of their shepherd, don't they? Anybody who has, uh, I know there's probably not many sheep herders in here, but sheep herders know that when they call their sheep, they're going to come to them because the sheep know their voice and they're going to come. And this uh, metaphor that Jesus uses as us being sheep is the same way. When Jesus calls us, we're going to come because we know him. When we hear his voice, we acknowledge him, we're drawn to him. But those who do not know him are not going to be drawn to him. They're not going to come to him when he calls their name or when he calls out because he is not their God. He said, I am the good shepherd. He is the ideal and perfect shepherd. There is no other shepherd other than Jesus Christ who is going to lead us into the kingdom of God. It's only him, the good shepherd. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. The question for you is, do you believe this? It's important that you believe this. If you're in God's family, you have to know that Jesus' resurrection is something that each one of us participate in. We have participated in his death and burial. We also are participating in his resurrection. And we learn this in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? 
Do you know, not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him. The scriptures is teaching us we have been buried, have been, past tense, buried with him by the baptism into his death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. See, when we die, we're not resurrected the same person. You're not the same person you once were. You are a new creation. You are born new. You are now spiritually alive where you were once spiritually dead. You are now God's possession and he loves you very much. Let us go to John 14, 6, where Jesus claims that he is the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. The way, Jesus is the single door that leads to God. Our redemption is found in him and him alone. There is no one else who can free us from this body of sin, pain, and suffering. The only one who can separate us from this body of sin is Jesus Christ. We should never be afraid to die because we don't really die. What dies is this shell right here. This shell is all that dies. The day that I die and anybody who attends my funeral, when you're looking at that shell, you're not looking at me. You're looking at the dead sinful shell that's left behind. The real me is with Jesus Christ, with the Father in heaven and the Holy Spirit and with all my brothers and sisters in God. You see, that's what we really have to understand when we're facing death. That's why when we see brothers and sisters who are getting close to death, and it's that time for them to go home, they're ready. They're not fighting and holding back, because they know what is about to come is far more glorious than anything they've ever experienced in this lifetime. Each one of us loves our life. Each one of us enjoys our lives. But there are many things about our lives that we don't like. We don't like dwelling in this sinful body. We don't like when we uh, fall prey to sin and then we come back and we have to repent. We're looking forward to the day that we don't have to worry about that anymore. To where sin is completely removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And we're in the presence of a holy God and can stand in the presence of a holy God. Do we understand that we'll be able to stand in the presence of a holy God? If God came to us right now in his full glory, there is not one of us who would remain standing or seated. We would be prostrate on the ground in fear because of the overwhelming glory of him. But no, that he loves us so much that he's provided that way that we can have eternal life. He is the way and he's the truth. God's truth is displayed in human form in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus stood before Pilate in uh, John 18 starting in verse 36? Do you remember when he stood before him? He came into the world for this purpose. That's what he told Pilate. I came into the world for this purpose. 
to testify to the truth. Do you remember Pilate's immediate question after that? What is truth? There's the mother of all questions. That is the question each one of us have to answer in our lifetime. What is truth? And how we answer this age-old question makes all the difference for us eternally. Jesus came to testify to the truth. And we know the truth. We really understand who Jesus is. We believe it with all of our hearts and we stake our lives on it. We would lay down our lives for him. And he is the life. There, there is no life after this life without Jesus Christ. Eternal separation from God is not life. Eternally living within your sin is not life. It's a horror that none of us in this room hopefully will ever have to experience. We will experience life. We will experience life like we have never experienced it before. We have a taste of it with God right now. But when we are resurrected and have our new body and we're able to stand before God, we'll truly understand fully what life is. And the last one is he is the true vine. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be made more fruitful. He is the true vine. Is there a counterfeit vine? He says he's the true vine, so that makes me think there may be a counterfeit vine. And we know who that counterfeit vine is, don't we? It's the devil himself. And this picture of Jesus as the vine and us as the branches reminds me of another representation of the church taught by the Apostle Paul. And I read it at the beginning of service today. It was Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He's the head of the body, and we are the many parts. And whatever part isn't doing its work is cut off. And those that remain are pruned. And why does he prune us? This is that endurance race Pastor John was talking about. The endurance race that he was talking about. We're pruned. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a challenge. And we have to fight and continue and strive for our faith. And keep fighting for our faith. And trust and lean on God. And when we do that, we'll know that when we reach the end, that we will get the prize. It's the prize we're running for, the prize of eternal life spent with God and removed from this body of sin and free indeed as we have never been free. And for the name of Jesus Christ, I am. We can be thankful.